Hello, I'm Fran Kelly, and on ABC Radio National, it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the second of our 2009 Boyer Lectures, A Very Australian Conversation, with General Peter Cosgrove. In 1999, Peter Cosgrove became a national figure as commander of the Interfet Force in East Timor. Following his achievements there, he was promoted to Chief of Army and went on to be promoted to General, and from there appointed Chief of the Defence Force. General Cosgrove retired from the Army in July 2005, but he hasn't retired from public life, and this year he delivers our 50th Boyer Lecture Series. Last week, General Cosgrove spoke on national security. This week, it's Australia's regional relationships. A few years ago, the Indonesian ambassador to Australia said that while Indonesia and Australia are close geographically, in many respects they're absolutely different from one another and it would be naive to expect that the relationship between the two countries will ever be problem-free. With the expulsion of our High Commissioner to Fiji last week and the recent rumblings with China, you could also extend that statement across the region. And yet they are our neighbours and how we interact with the countries closest to us will determine our challenges and our opportunities for the future. As General Cosgrove reminds us today, within this whole gamut of needs and aspirations, it underscores the depth of our responsibility and obligations as a rich and stable neighbour to take care of them. With the second in his very Australian conversation that is the Boyer Lecture Series for 2009, General Peter Cosgrove and Australia's Regional Relationships. For sale or rent, continent, quiet secluded neighbourhood, off the beaten track, all round panoramic ocean views, magnificent gardens but some irrigation needed for parts of property, suit handyman. No dwellings but huge potential, many native fauna species on property available as pets or food, traditional owners very obliging. Suit, pioneer couple wishing to get away from it all. First to see will colonise. Thus might have been a Rialta advertisement for Terra Australis back in 1776. For many generations, such a description of the wide brown land would have seemed modestly apt. Perhaps the traditional owners weren't as thrilled to have European company as the real estate agent prophesied, but what agent ever failed to gild the lily just a bit? Maybe the middle bit of the property was more parts than indicated, but the few thousand early settlers tended to hug the coast anyway. What the real estate agent got entirely right was the backwater and oceanic nature of the continent. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. A week ago, I commenced the Boyer series of lectures with my thoughts on Australia's national security. To the degree that our national security can ever be regarded as theoretical, in that commentary I abstained from mentioning particular relationships, except inevitably I made some reference to the United States and our security interdependence with the superpower, through the bonds of time, through shared values, and not least through a security pact, the ANZUS Treaty. Yet to a huge degree... So many aspects of our existence are outcomes of our international relationships, economically, culturally, ethnically, and demographically, as well as the obvious security dimension. And while there is in all of this an obvious correlation between the size of the neighbour and the distance from our shores, 
we would all agree that even tiny states in our close region have an elevated significance. Tuvalu, population less than 20,000, doesn't register on many radar screens of larger and more remote countries, but it has to be on ours. Equally, though, there are so many nations, large and small, in our region that I will have to be selective in remarking on key relationships, and thus excluding some very important nations and relationships from my review. For example, Japan and the Koreas fall into that category. But it is my belief that we will, for the foreseeable future, see them through the prism of their emerging neighbourhood superpower, China. China frames the top end of our region, and I could certainly spend all the rest of my time speaking only about the Middle Kingdom. I will get there later in today's remarks, but really I must start with our close and giant neighbour, Indonesia. Can any of you remember a protracted period when Indonesia, its actions and concerns, and thus its relationship with Australia, were not major issues? From its move to independence, to the great political purges of the Sukarno period, confrontation, the annexation of East Timor, the Long Suharto regime, Irian Jaya, East Timor again in 1999, people smuggling, terrorist actions, and even that most tragic natural disaster event, the Asian tsunami of 2004, all of these kept reminding us of the centrality of our relationship with Indonesia. In my opinion, it is far and away our most complex and important regional relationship. It is useful to remind ourselves that it is the world's most populous Muslim state. That said, while there is no doubt that Islam is one of the unifying characteristics of the state, equally the nation is not homogenous, and this just adds to the complexity. For all our scoffing, Canberra elites are much better able to represent opinions and attitudes within Australia than their equivalents in Jakarta for the quite diverse population of the archipelago. It pains me to see from time to time in Australia a simplistic attitude that this diversity somehow undermines the legitimacy of a pluralistic construct to the Indonesian state. We have managed to convey significant offence in this regard to many Indonesians over time. The United States of America wasn't always so united. For Australia, there are rub points in the areas of cultural, economic, nationalistic and ideo-religious interaction. Every one of these broad areas has been a source of friction in the recent past. Uh, the Bali bombing, followed by a spate of other terrorist attacks, the various drug-running issues, people smuggling, illegal fishing, sensitivity over Irian Jaya. Yet all of these issues are being managed with reasonable success. One thing which has profoundly impressed me over the last several governments in Australia and in Indonesia is the assortment of pragmatic and effective joint working relationships that have been formed. In the immediate aftermath of the shocking Bali bombings of 12 October 2002, Commissioner Mick Kilty of the Australian Federal Police moved very quickly 
to capitalise and expand upon the relationship that existed with Polri, the Indonesian National Police, to both investigate the crime and to set up joint task forces to contain and eradicate further terrorism within the Indonesian jurisdiction. It is in the nature of law and order operations that many of the successes of such partnerships receive no publicity. But the people of both nations have very good cause to applaud the partnership. I also think the Rudd government's decision to work even more closely with the Indonesian government over people smuggling is a very timely and apt theme of the relationship. I would go further. I would be seeking to collaborate with Indonesia on mutual law enforcement at sea, in relation to terrorism, of course, but also piracy and environmental challenges. Although I have spoken broadly on security in my first lecture, I think it is important to make a particular comment on our security position vis-à-vis Indonesia. Given the quite extraordinary problems of a democratic Indonesia developing its huge population and vast territory into the future, it is plain that Indonesia as a state lacks the desire and even the energy and the means to interfere with Australia's vital security interests. That said, there will be an abundance of sectoral concerns to exercise our underlying friendship over the decades ahead. Here again, while acknowledging the legitimate concerns of many Australians about a respect for human rights by security forces, we should see this always as a work in progress in Indonesia rather than as an absolute. Therefore, we should always be looking for ways to collaborate and share expertise and effort in the security arena. Even through the vexed period of East Timor's move to independence in 1999 and 2000, our previous familiarity with the Indonesian Armed Forces helped us to negotiate through a number of tense moments to the ultimate maintenance of the relationship between our two nations. The recent government initiative to have a group of very highly qualified professionals, not necessarily military, ready to deploy, classically after a natural disaster, to places in our region such as Indonesia is another very welcome development. I can't stress enough that this urge to partnership is an important legacy matter for our kids and theirs. You won't be surprised that next on my list is Papua New Guinea. It is one of the most rugged, compartmentalised and in places inaccessible countries on earth. It is a nation of about 6 million people, most of them impoverished and at health risk and nearly 1.28% of the population, or somewhere just under 100,000 people, are infected with the HIV-AIDS virus. While PNG is proudly sovereign, and wonderfully rich in culture and history and natural beauty, it is also needy and fragile in the robustness and reach of its instruments of government. It has the instincts and the ambitions of a developing democracy, yet the same cultural and historical impediments that have beset other societies which have only recently started to move on from their ancient roots. Tribalism, the one-talk feature of society, and the very great compartmentalisation of the country through its own geography 
and its limited infrastructure all conspire to suppress its development. Together with Fiji, which while very different socially, culturally and economically, PNG comprises the leadership and the critical mass of the Pacific Islands group. That leadership has in the past set the tone for the broader Australian relationship into the region, and not always to our liking. This is not a complaint, just a reality. The Solomon Islands, Vanuatu and the other smaller micro-states of the region all to some degree struggle with similar obstacles to their own development. Yet the beautiful simplicities and unspoilt, undeveloped landscapes of their island paradises are symptoms of the obstacles they face. Their aspirations are to have the opportunities and amenities shown to them by the tools of the information age, by their own travels, and by the casual affluence of the tourists who flock to their shores. So now, there is not just aspiration, but impatience. Yet the very nature of their society and culture and environment inhibits the ordinary self-attainment of those aspects of development. Well-meant advice from the organisations representing the haves to these nations of have-nots about the logical development pathways of infrastructure and crucial social institutions often invokes resentment and impatience. To this complex series of challenges, we can, in this millennium, add an appreciation or indeed apprehension of the potential effect of climate change on some of the tiny island states. Changes in no way due to them nor able to be mitigated by them, but potentially lethal to their community existence. What price the idyllic existence of tiny Tuvalu if this comes to pass? Within this whole gamut of needs and aspirations, it underscores the depth of our responsibility and obligation as a rich and stable neighbour to take care of them. Yet the pathway we know from previous experience is unlikely to be smooth. Australia and New Zealand have such a history of close involvement with all of these nations that a few earnest attempts to redefine or reinvent a modern relationship with some of them have sometimes proved to be a rocky road. For many years, Australia, having been the administering power for Papua New Guinea, was very sensitive about perceptions of it adopting paternalistic and possibly neo-colonial behaviour towards our previous dependency and other southwest Pacific states. Accordingly, with Papua New Guinea and with some other Pacific aid recipients, we tended to hand out the money along with some offers of other material assistance and some advice. We were worried when much of this aid seemed to miss the mark. From time to time there would be a row when we complained about the lack of effectiveness of some component of the aid and we would be accused of exerting some form of economic coercion over the aid recipient. The Solomon Islands situation which became critical in 2003 demonstrated the problems if fragile governments and economies descend into a state of collapse. There has been an awakening in the South West Pacific and an understanding that the immediate effects of a situation such as that which confronted the Solomon Islands are dire, that any subsequent foreign intervention is likely to be problematic, protracted, expensive 
and inconvenient, and that the loss of prestige involved in inviting and accepting earlier remedial action with the help of nearby developed countries is nothing compared to that involved in an actual collapse and a subsequently more dramatic intervention. That said, inevitably, collaborative programs to improve and shore up governments and public administration are the most sensitive aspects of our relationship with our near neighbours in the southwest Pacific, and often a case of one step forward, two steps back. Not all of the best things we might do for our neighbours will take place in their homes. I was uplifted by the news of the intent to establish a guest worker scheme allowing people from the southwest Pacific to work in Australia while remaining residents of their own countries. For the majority of those states which are either marginal in a standalone economic sense or unambiguously micro-economies, this is a very sensible approach. Done carefully, it seems a sensible thing for the haves to share with the have-nots. Of all the states of the Southwest Pacific, the saddest situation is that of the Republic of Fiji. Sometime after the coup there, I agreed to be part of an eminent persons group to visit Fiji and to make recommendations to the foreign ministers of the Pacific Forum concerning the way ahead that might be urged by the Forum. From that point of view, I seek to be quite measured in my remarks this afternoon but there are some aspects of the situation which are obvious to all. While the present government of Fiji is largely comprised of civilian appointments, it is a creation of the military using force majeure. This is effectively the fourth military coup in Fiji since 1987. It seems to me that each time a change in power occurs within an organised democracy by other than democratic means, that democracy becomes weaker and more brittle, and the checks and balances and protections of democracies to individuals and to minorities start to corrode. Of particular concern to me with my long background in uniform is that in Fiji there is a likelihood of a coup culture embedding into the military apparatus. Only Fijian officers and soldiers of over 20 years' service will remember a time when it was unthinkable for the military to take the law into its own hands. In my view, this example, by a leading Pacific Islands country, a nation of fine and friendly people, casts a deep shadow over the rest of the Pacific Islands region. While the Pacific Forum countries have been united in their view that Fiji must return to a representative, and democratically elected government as soon as possible, the regime in Fiji continues to postpone its predicted timing for a new election. The sanctions imposed by the Forum, and by Australia and New Zealand in particular, are designed to avoid economic hardship to ordinary Fijians. But the corollary is that they are by way of being only inconveniences to the regime. Of all the other alarms and excursions over time in this broad part of our neighbourhood, nothing gives me more concern for the future than the need to see a stable, effective and representative democratic government in Fiji. 
Most Australians who take a reasonable interest in our international relations would have a pretty good handle on the nature of our relationship with the only present global superpower, the United States of America. Most of us can say that we have grown up with it. Yet I doubt if we can say the same about the People's Republic of China. China, the emerging new superpower. China, the dominant Asian power of the Asia-Pacific, predicted as the global economic engine room of the future. China, the hugely important trading partner of Australia. We all know the modern story of China's huge expansion and its burgeoning prominence as a key international player. Understanding the reality of China's expansion and its significance to regional and world affairs is a challenge to powers and regions with much higher stakes than Australia's, for example, the United States and the European Union. Coming to terms with that understanding, that reality, in a way which is positive and productive and which preserves equilibrium, is extremely challenging. Australia will be under pressure in this regard. While we see no reason for it to involve a zero-sum game in terms of our relationship with the United States, we have to work hard to ensure that both the US and China see it in that light. Equally, for Australia to have a mature relationship with China, we need for them to respect us as a knowledgeable, sensitive, friendly and sophisticated trading partner and neighbour. That does not demand that Australia will automatically acquiesce on every issue generating friction in the relationship. There is, of course, a security dimension to our relationship with China. Although some may point to its suzerainty over time of some of its peripheral territories, it has never been a wider regional hegemon. While there is no doubt China actively seeks to exert influence and to be accorded respect, it does not have a history of wider colonial acquisition. That said, China as a future superpower creates a sort of overpressure in Asia that will and indeed should make all of its regional neighbours, including Australia, healthily sensitive, if not nervous. Australia's ongoing challenge will be to balance our perpetual friendship and ongoing, likely future close alignment with the United States with our commercial, social and regional linkages with China. It will always be in our interest to encourage and facilitate cooperation without competition between the two powers, or failing that, competition without conflict. There is hardly a more important or useful ongoing foreign relations role for Australia than this. Although I live for a year in India and have a deep affection for that wonderful nation, I foresee that India's relationships into our region will be overwhelmingly benign and cultural and economic in nature. I don't mean that India will lack interest in our region, far from it. However, I think that India will continue to have its hands full with domestic developments and its continental rather than maritime relationships. It will continue to focus carefully on the challenges of its northwest and, of course, its relationships with China. Simply, I would say that our relationship with India affords huge opportunities. Although the continental United States sits across the horizon from where we would regard the oceanic boundaries of our region, there is no doubt that as the sole superpower and particularly as the major power in the Asia-Pacific, 
No review of our regional relationships should fail to take into account the policies and needs of the USA. I think it is safe to say that in a raw strategic and security sense, the US is primarily interested in North Asia and the sea routes through the Pacific and the Indian Ocean to the Middle East and Europe. Most of the policy attention, information gathering and military deployments by the US underscore that priority. This doesn't mean an absence of interest or episodic concern about events further south. It simply means that even a superpower can't focus on everything at once. There is then implicitly an understanding that the great countries of Southeast Asia and the Southwest Pacific will so manage their affairs and their relationships as to minimise the requirement for US resources, especially military resources, to be used to sort things out. Some may think that there's an element of hubris on the part of the US in that approach. For my part, I think it is perfectly understandable and reasonable for the US to hope and pray that there is a part of the globe where others will take care of what needs to be done. The listening audience must contain some New Zealanders and they will have been waiting with bated breath to see if this tour de raison would include remarks on the shaky isles. As our greatest friend and ally, I would never overlook the Kiwis. If for some reason it was no longer possible for me to be an Australian, then I could only hope for the Kiwis to take me in. The relationship we have with them is so symbiotic and vital, especially in the need for constructive and positive relationships throughout our region, that we have with them a profound partnership enhanced by nuanced differences. Do you recall a number of years ago, there was a certain amount of whinging on our side of the Tasman when New Zealand opted to take a different approach to its security policy, basically to dispense with some of the higher-end and more expensive warfighting capabilities. I thought that was pretty unfair of us and certainly disrespectful of the sovereign yet wholehearted way in which New Zealand has partnered with Australia in so many military operations near and far over a very long period. A relationship so deeply rooted in shared values, shared history, shared geography and shared responsibilities surely needs no checklist of commitment. I can recall the exhilarating feeling of watching the Harker performed by the New Zealand Infantry on their arrival into East Timor. A reminder that there is an NZ in Anzac. The real key for our relationship with New Zealand is to ensure that we share an agreed vision of the likely challenges and opportunities for the future. Not just for ourselves, but for those nations in our region who rely on us for material assistance and for understanding. Such mutuality of views is not and cannot be automatic between sovereign nations, hugely similar but proudly different. We have to work at it. Meetings between elements of our governments ought to be on the same frequent and prolific basis as our two business communities enjoy. Australians and New Zealanders compete ferociously in all sporting events, yet there are no two nations more naturally aligned in our perspectives on our region. The trick is to never take that for granted. In conclusion, while it is unlikely that much of what I have said today comes to you as a startling revelation, it comes to you from the experience of a working lifetime, in the most part immersed in studying and considering regional challenges. 
if the real estate agent I quoted in my preamble was around today, I wonder if he would describe Australia and its region as a quiet neighbourhood, suiting a pioneer couple wishing to get away from it all. I think not. Perhaps it would now be lively beachfront continent overlooking the global fairground, suit modern family with strong community values and a sense of adventure. One thing is for sure. This is the family home and this is our neighbourhood. Each time a change in power occurs within an organised democracy by other than democratic means, that democracy becomes weaker and more brittle. On ABC Radio National, that was General Peter Cosgrove delivering Australia's regional relationships, the second of this year's Boyer Lecture series, which he's called A Very Australian Conversation. Thanks today to Sue Clark and Michelle Goldsworthy. I'm Fran Kelly. I hope you can join me next week for Leading in Australia, the third of the 2009 Boyer Lectures, delivered again by General Peter Cosgrove. 